You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith and Other Oddities. We are today we're in Judges. We're actually going to get into the text. And we started kind of introducing it last week with some resources and some materials to try and help everyone out. Um, but we're actually uh, we're actually gonna take a look at the book of Judges and see what we've got. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a crazy book. It's got probably is it the I don't know, is it the most dismemberment in the Bible or I, I think so. Or the, or the most, at least the most uh, detailed accounts of it. Yeah. Well, and it's just back to back once we get past the introduction. Yeah. Once you get past the introduction, then it, it's just violence. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just straight up. This is the action adventure chapter of the Bible. And right. It's, it, it, even though there's wars and conquest, every place else they're kind of discussed in broad strokes. And we're talking about mm-hmm. what the tribes did and. With judges, we're more talking about what the individual is doing. Right. And except for the first couple of chapters, which that's all introduction stuff. And it, it really is setting the scene. And yeah, this. But, but and even though it's introductory, though, there's still quite a bit of there's a decent amount of action and, and quite a bit of good detail there. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. OK, well, and let's let's kind of get into that, because um we actually, one of our first stories um, is about the king who has his thumbs and toes cut off. And this is the only place in the Bible that we're going to find that kind of graphic torture of a prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. Every place else, if there's anything like Joshua displaying the bodies of the dead kings in his book, it's the bodies after the death. Right. With judges, we actually have the people of God doing things that are not characteristic of the people of God. Mm-hmm. And that's what the setup with all this introductory material is about, is to explain to you that, hey, in the book of Joshua, they were following God's commands. They were doing it right. There was actually a more humane treatment, even though we do have, you know, these massive wars. Mm-hmm. The, the code of conduct was so much more elevated than what you're going to see in Judges. And even the Judges themselves, their actions are questionable. Right. And there's a lot of critique against the judges themselves um, with only one, well, two big exceptions. And we'll get to those. But yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a lot of dismemberment and you're talking about, uh, you know, this is the only part where we see there's, there's torture of a prisoner of war who's still alive. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, the way this is presented. This actually, this book gets a lot of critique from non-Christians because Mm -hmm. And ignored by Christians. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Ignored by Christians because there is so much going on that everyone goes, well, how could, how could God approve of that stuff? And I think we're going to see, we go back through this. It's not approved. Right. But we're going to pick up on the, what's the, our favorite theme in the Bible? Redemption, how God comes through and, and redeems situations mm-hmm. to teach us a lesson. And and when I say he redeems these stories, I'm not saying they all wind up rosy pink and everything's fine. Right. But, you know, it's it. Well, and it, it's it, it's a it's a story that that well, we can learn from. And it displays God's compassion, because if one of the things that you're going to notice, there's this ongoing cycle that um, becomes very evident. Uh, basically, the people are doing evil on the side of God. Mm-hmm. And as they're doing evil on the side of God, they cry out. And that word there is not repent. They're not crying out in repentance. They're, they're crying out in misery and anguish. Mm-hmm. They, they aren't saying, hey, God, we messed up. Can you come save us because we want to be yours? They're just saying, we, we need help. Yeah. And God moves with compassion, even on these unrepentant people. And then there's this cycle of peace. And then the judge of that particular story dies. And then the people start to do evil on the side of the Lord again. Mm-hmm. They cry out. God raises up a judge. We go through this over and over again. And each time God is saying, even though you've messed up and even though you are not doing what you're supposed to, and you aren't even repenting, I love you and I'm still going to move on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's good news. We, yeah. we need to know that, that even when we totally mess it up, God, God still loves us and he moves on the behalf of the hurting. Yeah. And well, let's, let's start, uh, just kind of walk us through chapter one <laughs> and... 
And let's talk about like how we get from the time of Joshua into the time of Judges. Okay, so as we get into this, you got to remember this this author is very brilliant. I mean, he he's doing something amazing. He is pointing us back to Joshua. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a lot of the same language, a lot of the same words and phrases that we find in, in Joshua. We're going to have some of the stories that were told in Joshua retold. Um, and a lot of times they're told with a little difference. It's not because they're contradictions. I get so tired of the contradictions argument. Uh, right. The writer is putting a different emphasis on what's happening. So the different writers bring out different things. But at the same time, while he's telling us to look backwards, He's also telling us to look forward. There's a lot of foreshadowing in what's going to happen, not just within the book of Judges, but also in the book of Samuel. And if you'll remember from the last episode, um, there's the tradition that Samuel wrote both Judges and the book of Samuel it, it, together. Right. And so now I, I don't agree with that. I think that's completely, um, there's no reason really to believe that other than tradition. Sure. But at the same time, that's how they were seen. So that tells you that the books are connected. Mm-hmm. And so the tradition, you know, even though I, it, I think it's wrong, it does inform us on how to read it. Okay. Now, do, you th- do we think that the author of Judges also authored Joshua? Or do you think that, that the author uh, took the, the format? Right. That's what we're looking at. Okay. Uh, that's exactly what he did. Uh, as a matter of fact, he begins, uh, Joshua 1 says, and after the death of Moses. Judges opens up with the exact same phrase after the death of Joshua. So definitely um, somebody who, whoever wrote Judges had a copy of Joshua sitting right there next to him Mm -hmm. and they were, they were playing off each other. And in doing so, he, this is how he, he pulls us back and allows us to compare and contrast the days of Joshua with the days of Judges. And Joshua, you've got this strong leader. You've got somebody that people respect. You have someone that the people can look up to. And, you know, Joshua's on the battlefield with God. Right. And the angel of the Lord is there consulting with Joshua, Joshua 5, um, whenever the, the commander of the Lord's host shows up and says, you know, I'm going to be with you. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is the, the theme of Joshua is what do the people accomplish under strong leadership? Judges is what are people messing up in the absence of strong leadership? Okay. So... So they they kind of mirror each other quite yes, a bit. Yes, yes. And when you compare and contrast, it really comes out. Um, so chapter one is set up with a, um, with a very specific formula. It's from the Assyrian summation text. Uh, we have archaeological records of these, and this is something that was used in the Middle East uh, that basically recounts the conquering of a nation. They are not chronological accounts. So just like um, the Assyrian summation text, this is not a chronological account. This is right. a geographic account. So you're actually watching the progression of how they take the land you know, from one side of the border to the other. So we aren't worried about date and time here. We're just worried about content. Okay. So we can keep that in mind. Uh, it's also not a complete list of the tribes. Uh, not all the tribes are mentioned, which makes sense because if we're operating geographically, Reuben and Dan settled on the other side of the Jordan. Mm-hmm. The, now they're going into uh, Canaan. Uh, Levi is not included because they don't get an allotment. They have cities within the various tribes to right. serve as spiritual leaders. Uh, Iskar was probably an oversight, honestly. There's a huge emphasis on Judah specifically, which is kind of interesting because Judah doesn't have any real standing at this point. He, he is not the leading tribe. The only thing he's really got going for him is that blessing back in Genesis 49 that we talked about, and the scepter shall not depart from him. Right. And so, uh, and we aren't going to see that prophecy fulfilled until King David. Right. So we've, we've still got a few hundred years here. Um, now, the emphasis on Judah can also indicate that this was somebody who was written by somebody who was personally involved with the battle. Mm-hmm. That they, at least this chapter, it was probably based on eyewitness accounts. And okay. this would make it one of the oldest chapters in the Bible, possibly even predating the song of, uh, of uh, Deborah. Okay. And Deborah, we know for a fact, was written at least by the 11th century, making it one of the oldest parts of the Bible. So, and we've got some really interesting things to say about that when we get to Deborah. But, um, so we got 
memories. We got eyewitness accounts. We have um, exact wordings from judge, judges. So this also tells us the editor. You mean from Joshua? Um, yes, from Joshua. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. So very much evidence. This was an editor who put this together for a purpose. This, this document was written um, to be a prophetic book. And we need to remember that because if we don't remember it's a prophetic book, then we don't get the theological message. We just get caught up in the gore and the violence and all the action. Okay. So, so, so this book, it's, you're saying it's, it, even though it's an account mm-hmm. of what's going on. Okay. So what, what sets off a prophetic book necessarily? I mean, and this is something that probably is, is really basic mm-hmm. or we think it should be. Mm-hmm. So what sets off a prophetic book from the rest of, I mean, other than there is some kind of message from God, but of course the whole Bible is a, <laughs> message, a message from God. God. So right. Talk, <laughs> a, a prophetic book usually includes a warning. It's basically saying, if you do this, then God's going to do that. And, and when you boil this book down, it, can, it boils down to if you're going to act like you don't have a king, mm-hmm. like they did in Judges, then you're not going to have a king. Because if this was written in the time of Manasseh, now we're looking at the Babylonian exile. And when the, you know, the, the tribes were taken out of Israel and weren't returned again, and some of them never to be returned again. And so the, the book function is if you're going to rise to this level of violence, even though you have a king then you won't have a king. You won't even have a nation. Okay. And so you're, they're kind of reverting back to uh, the state of judges by the time we get to Manasseh, that the violence was increasing in the nation. There's no care for the widows and orphans. There's the, the true religion is gone. Okay. And so this book serves as kind of a parable almost would be a way to think of it, um, that if God's going to, to act this way in the past, then he's still capable of doing it today. Okay, that makes so, sense. Um, now, we begin the, the chapter, um, we begin the book actually on a very positive note. Um, and it says in uh, verse one, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. This is good. Right. You know, this is, this is actually a, a pretty awesome thing. And you've got to remember that they had just been with Joshua, who was a leader who had God with them, and God was um, fighting on behalf of them. Matter of fact, in the battles of Joshua, God goes before them and kills the enemies. And when you read the conversations that Joshua has with God, they don't sound like prayers. Right. They, they sound like he's talking to someone who's right there next to him. Sure. And, and I think when we take off our bias of God being this abstraction in the Old Testament, this, this, you know, power that's floating out there and actually go back and read the accounts as if the angel of the Lord was there in the midst. And you know, we've talked before about how the angel of the Lord's embodied God and, and this kind of relationship, it, it makes, it really feels like this is not a time of abstract spirituality. Right. And, and which is really funny because we, from, I mean, you probably heard this in Sunday school growing up. I know I certainly did. Was that when Jesus came around and he was the first one to really make people think of God as someone you could relate to. And you see in, if you're actually looking at at Genesis, at Joshua, at Exodus, Mm -hmm. these books, they don't paint God that way. Oh, no. I mean, you, you have this idea that, Oh well, well Jesus came along and said and called God Father, and no one ever did that before, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. And the the idea of God as this odd spiritual abstraction comes more from you know Eastern thought than anything. Neoplatonism, and yeah, it, or yeah, or Greek thought, but yeah. but this, yeah. So for the, for the Jewish mindset, it wasn't totally outlandish to have God as a as a person. 100%. God, God was very much present. I mean, we opened Genesis with God walking in the garden. Right. And so the idea that God could actually be present, that was part of their culture. Well, and, and that's interesting to me now that I hadn't really <laughs> thought of the walking in the garden thing, but, you know, listening to uh, uh, Heiser talk about the, the two powers mm-hmm. uh, theology about there's God who, you know, who is in heaven reigning, and then there is like the angel of the Lord character who can be physically present, mm-hmm. you know, and I always heard growing up God walking in the garden. Oh, well, that's just, 
that's just a... Uh, it's a metaphor. A metaphor. <laughs> it, it's uh, Oh, I'm trying to think. Of, metaphor, there, there's another word that I heard. Uh, symbolic uh, is what we always heard. And he didn't actually walk because God's just a spirit and doesn't have feet. Mm-hmm. But then we contradict ourselves when we get into the stories of Abraham and we talk about the angel of the Lord who was God. Yeah. And so I do find it very... When God arrives to eat a meal with Abraham. Yeah. So it's very strange to me that um, that, that would be... I, again, it's those arbitrary lines that we talk about mm-hmm. where... It's our filter. We're willing to believe this, but not this. And so, yeah, that does make sense that, yeah, God would actually physically walk with people. Oh, well, it says in Joshua um, 1.5, God tells Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. How was God with Moses? And, you know, they were on Sinai. They were talking. They were having mm-hmm. a conversation. This is where we get the Torah from, the Ten Commandments. And so Joshua was not, you know, sending these random prayers up in helium balloons to heaven and hoping God would respond. Mm-hmm. He, he's like having these real on-the-fly kind of conversations in the heat of battle with God. Now, it's yeah, no, it's been a while since since I've read through Joshua. I should have done it. I because I know we're <laughs> judges and the the parallels and everything. But did um did Joshua did he go into the tent of meeting to meet with God? I don't recall if that's in the narrative or not. You know, I'd have I, I don't remember right off. I know he was outside a lot of times when Moses was inside mm-hmm. and and I, I want to say he didn't. Uh, I know Joshua five. He's outside of Jericho, and the commander of the Lord's mm-hmm. host shows up, and you know that's a point by point replay of the burning bush, right? And you can just just follow it, and it makes sense too. Um, just while we're on the topic, when Moses is up on the mountain as a shepherd, that God would appear to Moses in a burning bush, something that a shepherd would understand. Mm-hmm. And here is Joshua, who's this fierce general. Mm-hmm. He God shows up to him like that. And so it's, I think from what we've seen, there is definitely this um, God responding and appearing to people in in methods and ways that they identify with and that they see themselves in. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know, I'd have this long way to answer your question, but that's kind of. Okay. Well, maybe we can go back and look at that later. Yeah. So. Um, get through. See, this is where I get lost in my notes because because then I mess you up. <laughs> we start talking about something that's supposed to happen later. Well, I or something that happened in the past. Um, but Joshua one and Joshua twenty three are speaking to the people, and he's telling the people to do exactly what they're doing. That they're supposed to follow in his footsteps. They're supposed to inquire of the Lord. Now Webb says that this requires a definite interaction with with God. Because the the instructions are too complex to just be uh, the urim and thummim. I always say that wrong, don't I? Urim and the The thummim. Yeah. Uh, That it's not a yes or no, that it's... um, I totally didn't see what you just showed me. Uh. Sorry. Um, But yeah. So, okay. So so the the speculation, there's speculation that instead of inquiring to God, um, that they are instead of going and talking to him like Joshua did, that they're having to to use the Urim and the Thummim. And that's right. a traditional speculation that's a very on Jewish. the Jewish teacher's part. Yes, because, and for, from that perspective, when you bring in the Jewish perspective, now this is a sad thing that the people are having to inquire of the Lord. Yeah. Because how, uh, they didn't need this before because they had Joshua interpreting. Right. And, and where Christian writers look at it and say, this is, no, this is great. They're actually doing what they're supposed to do. And yeah, well, it, because in our tradition, you inquire of the Lord. Well, what do you do before you make any decision? Well, you pray. And mm-hmm. that's what we think of when we think of inquiring of the Lord is that we're going to pray. Yeah. And so... That in, doesn't... And, and that's where this doesn't fit even our ideas. Right. Well, and, and it's very interesting to me that, that how quickly the Bible gives these very specific answers. And of course, how quickly did it happen? Do we even know? Right. Um, because again, the narrative's not complete, but you know, we see David doing this mm-hmm. and uh, when he's trapped and he says, he's going to inquire of the Lord and, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he asks God, are these people going to deliver them up, deliver me into my enemy's <laughs> hands? And God says, yes, they're going to deliver you into your enemy's hands. And so it's very, 
I'm I'm very curious about how things happened. Right. And and especially we see this again, speed and detail mm-hmm. or seeming amount of speed and detail. Again, the narrative is it's it's unclear. So, well, and, you know, and I'm sure that that was one of the things that the writers had to take in consideration. How much detail do we include? Because, you know, even what they included is sometimes overwhelming. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, yeah, the Jews were very much, they, they felt like this was, this was sad. And they felt like that they would have consulted with the priest in the Umimathumim and they would be, have been, it may, may have been, um, getting these yes or no kind of answers from the casting, kind of like casting lots. Yeah. And Webb says, no, that, the, that this is too, too detailed and we've got way too many words. And I tend to lean towards Webb. So this is one of those times that, that you're going to see me side with the Christian uh, commentators and their interpretations of things on this, because the, the instructions do, especially as we go through, get very specific. And mm-hmm. by the time we get to chapter uh, three, I think there's even more evidence to back up that this was, this was a, at least an audible interaction that occurred. Um, mm-hmm. How far it went beyond that, I have no idea. But the the answer is that Judas shall go up, and mm-hmm. so Judas the first one singled out. Again, geographic, not chronological. Um, he's going to go up, and he is going to uh, he's going to conquer, and this is going to foreshadow, you know, that David. Uh, is going to rise up and be a conqueror. And then mm-hmm. Jesus is going to come from the line of David. Uh, Judah invites Simon to, to join him in the battle. And this makes sense. They're biological brothers. Well, they, their predecessors were. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's, be- we should clarify that. Yeah. Because we're not doing there, even though we're using the names of the individuals that's referring to the tribes it, as though the tribe were a person. Right. Which is kind of weird. And and that's throughout the book. So anytime you hear of the original 12 patriarchs, we're actually referring to the tribe. We're talking about their descendants. We aren't talking about um, the individual themselves. Right. Because they didn't live all the way through the (laughs) Egyptian captivity and all that stuff. They aren't five, 600 years old. What's (laughs) not the last time I checked. So we're out of Genesis. Um, So, yeah. So, but the, the tribes were kind of connected based on the, the, the connections that were among the 12 brothers. Mm-hmm. So Judah and Simon were biological brothers, full brothers, um, sons of Leah. And yeah. Simon, the tribe very much followed in the pattern of Simon, the person Simon was the one who, uh, if you'll remember Simon, the levy attacked Shechem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of known for being very fierce and, also, the reason why Reuben asked Simon to join them is Simon's inheritance was within Judah's territory. So they they kind of... You mean why Judah asked Simon to join him? Yeah. You said Reuben. I don't know why I said Reuben. But okay, so Judah brings, Maybe I'm hungry. Uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Reuben's greatest accomplishment, that sandwich. Uh, anyway... Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, no, so. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. I'm like... Let's make sure we're clear on that. So, so Jude, Simon's land is within Judah's territory. Right. And so. And, and so it makes sense. I mean, they're, they're going to be fighting for basically the same land mass. Right. And it, it's, it's logical. It's rational. And what winds up happening actually is Judah will absorb Simon. Mm-hmm. And you really, you aren't going to hear anything more about Simon after, I think it's verse 17 of this book. And then, um. In 200 years, you really don't hear Simon spoken about as an independent tribe at all. Uh, they, they're just kind of, you know, an aspect of Judah. Uh, so they are going to be fighting the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And they're, they do defeat them. Yeah. Um, this is the first time that the Perizzites are mentioned in Judges. And they're, they're a distinct group within the Canaanites. The first time we heard about them was Genesis 15. And that's when God gives Abraham the promise that he's going to displace this whole list of nations. The Perizzites is on them, on that list. And so uh, that's the first time we hear about it. And now, now this prophecy from all these hundreds of years ago, it's coming true. Right. And over and over again, whenever you find throughout Exodus and um, Deuteronomy, 
and in Joshua, when God's promising the the victory of Israel over these Canaanite nations, the Perizzites are always included in that list. Um, they were one of the groups of people, just a little side note, that Jacob was afraid of when uh, Simon mm. did, uh, Simon and Levi attack Shechem. Yeah. He was one, it was one of the groups of people Jacob specifically mentions and says, they're going to attack us. They're going to kill us because of what you did. Right. So these are pretty fierce uh, folks. And Joshua 17, 15 says, clean the ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. That's, that's important because the Perizzites are always mentioned in connection. Per, well, I say almost, almost always um, mentioned in connection with the Rephaim. Right. And we spent a lot of time talking about the Rephaim. These were the giants. Mm-hmm. These uh, are descendants of the Nephilim. And they are a group of people that were specifically put under Harem, which is that um, the utter destruction. Okay. So they're, they're supposed to be completely wiped out. There's not supposed to be any mercy because they are the spiritual and biological hybrids. That's the corruption of, of God's established order. Right. So. Um, and okay. that, well, that, and, and a real quick word on that, because people get really uncomfortable when we start talking about genocide. Right. And a couple of things to remember there, whenever we have individuals who repent and turn to God anywhere in the, in the scripture, even during these times of utter destruction, they're accepted. Right. Yeah. Um, we, yeah. We see that with Rahab and uh, Ruth. Else? Ruth. Yeah. Uh, we see it with Caleb, and we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about that. Um, and Jethro, um, Moses's father-in-law. Mm-hmm. The, so mm-hmm. this is not. Um, this is not just indiscriminate killing. These are people who they knew the truth, right? Because they've got connections back to Esau and Ishmael, and, and these. These individuals we know actually did know the stories. So um, they knew that this was God's land. Mm-hmm. They knew that this was the land that had been promised to the Israelites. So this is basically, they're coming home and finding burglars in their house and saying, you need to leave. Well, yeah. Well, there's, there's that. There's people taking over the land that God's promised to Israel. But you also have, like you said, they're people who knew the truth and, and made a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they are choosing to go directly into the, you know, into the camp of God's enemies and, and, and decide that that's where they want to be. Precisely. They, so it's, it's not just like, what, Hey guys, what, what's going on? Oh, well, there's a sword there. You're going to kill me with it. You know, it wasn't like just, they showed up. It was like, they made a choice. Well, Rahab says that Rahab specifically notes that when they, when the children of Israel get to Jericho, the nations have heard they're afraid of this God. And so she, she lays it out. This is why I'm going to be on your side. This is why I'm helping you because I know your God's the true God. And so she, she lets us know that these people are not ignorant. Mm-hmm. And, and she didn't learn this because she was somebody special. She learned this because she was in a city where this was all the buzz. Right. So um, the, the other reason why these people had to be driven out, you've got to remember, this is a time of collective blessing and cursing. And blessing at this point meant rain, it meant mm-hmm. ab- abundant harvest, it meant, you know, flocks that were healthy. Right. God can't bless his people without blessing his enemies if the enemies are living in the middle of the pe- his people's home. Right. So this is God saying, hey, I'm going to protect your blessing for you. So this is, um, we're getting into verse five here because this is the... Covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, getting into verse five, uh, we have, uh, Judah has, has fought this battle. They've won. Uh, God gave them the victory. Mm-hmm. Verse five says, and they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. So. This is that story we were talking about is a little different. It's we've got um, someone being tortured, someone being tortured. Uh, and, and go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so, and specifically, we have how they're tortured, which is 
seems just totally bizarre to me. It, it, it's really weird. Um, now, we do know that cutting off thumbs and, and toes was something that did occur uh, specifically to inhabit pris- inhibit prisoners of war from uh, engaging in warfare. Right. And uh, now I was looking specifically for some kind of um, historical account that gave even more detail about why they would have done this to this mm-hmm. king. I really couldn't find anything other than everyone knows that this happened. Every And I'm like, I, I kind of hate those sorts of... Right. Of, yeah. If everyone knows something, where did they learn it? Yeah. And so I... We do know that it happened here. Uh, I, I know that it, I think I can remember reading about it happening in other ancient cultures, but I can't find the specific source on it. But what's interesting about this, if we just go with what the Bible says, is there's the speech. This is the, the very interesting part. The speech that Adonai Bezek says, 70 kings and their thumbs and their big toes uh, cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So this guy was doing this to his prisoners of war. And he's, he's thinking theologically about this. Mm-hmm. Even though he's a Canaanite, he, he's thinking theologically about it. And he's saying, this is, was done to me because God. And the thing is, the word here, God, is Elohim. Elohim can be a specific name of God. It can be a generic just like our word for God. Yeah. It, it can be any God. So which God is he talking about? Yeah. He, or he could have just been referring to this is, this is my fate. The, yeah. fate, the fate, has, you know, the fates have seen my destruction as it were. Yeah. And, and he accepts it because in his worldview, the idea that gods would repay you for what you did, that, that was just normal. Mm-hmm. And so he, he acknowledges this. Um, the problem with this this is not in keeping with God's way of dealing with people. And so Judah has already, the tribe has already adopted Canaanite methodology. Oh, you're saying what Judah and them did, Mm -hmm. not, not the retribution part, because we do see, uh, I always like, like, no, we do see God repaying (laughs) things. Um, We do. um, But yeah, you're talking specifically about the, the torture of, of life. Yeah. I mean, just in this short period of time, we don't know, we don't know how long it was, but they had already said, Hey, this is how the Canaanites do it. This is what we're going to do. And this is a problem. Um, And we can't have Canaanite methodology being used to accomplish God's goals. And then we have the, uh, the additional problem. They take him to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. What are they doing with him? We don't have prisoners of war. We don't keep kings of conquered nations. Right. Uh, uh, we specifically see this in 1 Samuel um, 15, where, I'm sorry, is that, yes, 1 Samuel 15, when Saul captures Agag. Agag mm-hmm. uh, he, he, Samuel is so mad that Saul does this, he hacks him to pieces. Right. And so you don't do this. And this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. Because everything from here on out is going to start to decline. And not only do they, they torture this guy, they keep him as a prisoner of war. He goes to Jerusalem. How long was he in Jerusalem? Did they kill him when they got to Jerusalem? Did he die of old age? What's going on here? We don't know. That, right. And if we had answers to those questions, we would have... Or, or did God kill him as an act of mercy to stop the, the Israelites from doing more evil? You know, uh, yeah. Wh- where is it? Yeah. Now, uh, Malbin, who was a Polish rabbi, he lived in about 1800 uh, to 1870. Uh, he argued that this guy was spared because he confessed his sins and accepted his consequence. So he actually sees what uh, Bezek is saying as, as positive. I can see how you might get there, but it might be, might be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I agree with that. But. It, to, to me, it sounds more like self pity. Um, see, the, and I thought it sounded stoic. Um, I, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I, but I didn't. I didn't see it as repentance. But I, I was kind of like, okay, this is this is the way it goes. I, in to take him back to Jerusalem. What was kind of a big deal too, because you know Jerusalem—that's going to be the centerpiece of all of our theology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
Jerusalem, we do know that it, it was actually, it was an inhabited city at this point. And we have in the Egyptian text at this point there, the, um, it's the name for the city is the establishment of God. Okay. So it was already associated with a holy place that the, there was some sacred significance. And of course, this is also the city that Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, which mm. is also the same. It's the it's same Jerusalem. place. Yeah. So um, now Judah does burn the inhabitants uh, um, and the whole city and doesn't burn the inhabitants. He burns the whole city. He does kill all the inhabitants like mm. he's supposed to, with the exception of this king. Uh, and that's where the question comes in, because if he's killing everybody else there, is this the point in time that he killed the king? Right. Who who knows? And so we're we're seeing that things are happening kind of like they're supposed to, but not like they're supposed to. There's kind of this this lukewarm approach to mm-hmm. what God's mm-hmm. commanding. So, but then we go into. Um, Verses 8 through 10. And do you want to read that? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. The minute, um, well, actually, is, this, is it 8? I'm looking. Uh, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set fire to the city. Then after the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland, then Judah against, and Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, now the name of Hebron was for, formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahai and Talmai. Okay, this is where I was going. Yes, I've, it's nice to remember I do have a plan. Yeah. Uh, so well, you got all those notes there. I figured you were doing something. Just a little bit. Uh, okay, so the Negev is, this is the same place where Abraham purchased uh, Sarah's grave. Mm-hmm. So this is an important place. Uh, Kirith Arba, the city of Arba. Uh, that's Hebron today, so we, we know where that's at. Um, Debir, the city of the book. And so this indicates that this is either a place of learning. Uh, it might have been a governmental outpost to, where they kept records. Um, but then Judah fe- defeats Shishai, Ahiman, Talmai. And this tells us that this is the recount of an event that happens in Joshua 15, 13 through 16. And the main difference in the accounts are that Judah, the tribe, is winning the battle. In Joshua, the, the victory is attributed to Caleb. And the, it's, not, it's not given to the tribe. It's given to a specific person. Right. So this is going to be a big deal here in a minute. Um, also, in Joshua 15, we find out that these three guys with the funny names are sons of Anak. And this is important because Numbers 13, 33, mm-hmm. it, it reads, And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we, saw our, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So specifically, when Judah defeats the city here in Judges, they are, it's direct hand-to-hand combat with the Nephilim. Mm -hmm. And so, but we only get that if you put the Joshua information in and you plug the numbers information in and you begin to get this fuller picture. Right. And so, but you got to remember, this was right after the report of the 12 spies and the 12 spies, that includes Caleb. Sure. So, um, and we're getting ready to move into the story of Caleb. And his importance here within the book of Judges. Yeah. Now, you, were mentioned, you mentioned earlier that Caleb was not one of the Israelites. Right. And so and he, he's one of the people who was actually for going to fight. Uh, right. And it, so... You he know, was actually more vocal than Joshua was. Yeah. Because, I mean, he was... He, and I, I think we talked about this earlier, uh, where it was kind of like there's speculation that maybe he didn't have the mentality of someone coming out of captivity mm-hmm. and was like, no, we, we deal with these people all the time. And, <laughs> right. you know, we, we can take care of that. We can do this. Uh, yeah. Well, and that, that's the thing. Caleb, when we talk about him, I was really surprised to learn that he's not Jewish. He, by birth, he is, he's a Canaanite. And um, let me see if I can find my verse here. Uh, Joshua 14, um, you know, Caleb approaches um, 
Joshua and says, hey, you know, Abraham, uh, Abraham, Moses promised me a specific inheritance and um, I, I want it. And this is 45 years after Moses made the promise and Caleb's still hanging on and saying, hey, I want I want what was promised to me. Mm-hmm. And so it specifically says in Joshua, then Joshua blessed him. He gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. How you like that name? I think that should be our next child, Jeff Nua, mm-hmm. um, next baby born in the family. Uh, Jeff Nua for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jeff Nua, the Canaanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kirith Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land rest from war. So, everything we we're talking about here kind of all tied up. Uh, there's no doubt. That Caleb's a Canaanite. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that they were fighting the Anakim. And like I said, with the numbers, that's, those are the, the Nephilim. Um, now, there's been some debate because there's, a, uh, there's another uh, genealogy in First Chronicles that mentions Caleb. It's a different Caleb. Remember, just because okay. somebody in the Bible has the same name, it doesn't mean it's the same person. Yeah, I know plenty of people named Bill. Right, a- exactly. So, the... Uh, well, okay, so one thing, too, I know there is mention in the Bible of the Anakim having six fingers and six toes, mm-hmm. on you know, six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet, each foot, each of their feet. There we go. I like that one. <laughs> and uh, so this, what you're talking about with Judah, this battle here where they cut off the thumb and, and the, the toe, toe, is there any... Is there any kind of... Are they trying to humanize him? Well, that's, that was my question. Yeah. Is there any kind of indication that that has anything to do with... Uh, if, if he was among the Anakim, did, he, did this king have six fingers and six toes? And were they just, you know, trying to make him more normal? <laughs> I don't know. I, question. <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, I would not be surprised if I could find some kind of Jewish uh, folklore that probably suggested the same thing. Right. Um. But I don't know if we can get there from scripture. So, but it it's a fun thought. I, I'm, I'm, I would be curious to find out more on that. I, I meant to look up some more on that, but we've been preparing all week for, <laughs> for the visit. Oh, yeah. So, but I, there, there's that wonder that, that, that came and talk. Those are the things that the, that the scripture makes you wonder about. Oh, yeah. And it, it's like when you start putting all the pieces in place and you realize, hey, wait a minute, there's probably more going on here than than what I realized. Um, and more of it's explained than what we realize when we start realizing like you know, just that with Caleb, we can pull together from Judges, go back to Joshua, mm-hmm. go back to Numbers, and then we go back to, to Genesis. And, and the, the themes are consistent. And right. this is the reason why I think the Bible has to be inspired. Um, now, the... As a Canaanite, this meant that Caleb was the descendant of Jethro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jethro is the uh, father-in-law of Moses. Sure. He's the one who realized that Moses was overworked and frazzled and needed a break. And he helped Moses uh, establish the, the 70 judges to, to deal with the people's problems so that Moses could focus on the things he needed to focus on. Uh, Moses asked Jethro to, hey, come with us. You know, we're going to be taking up residence in our new land and our new home in a couple of weeks. And we'd love to have you along. We could, we could build a wing for you. Yeah. yeah. It wound up being a 40 year track, but um, the Canaanites, <laughs> they're treated with, with great affection. And mm-hmm. what I thought was interesting is in Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he says, Hey, you're going to drive out the, the Canaanites here. Um, we see them drop from the list after Moses and, and Jethro have their their moment of bonding right and so they there's actually a hypothesis uh heiser did a lot of work on this in his exodus series it's called the canaanite um hypothesis and it's the idea that these people um the canaanites or the midianites they were actively involved in the worship of yahweh and that uh, moses learned about the worship of yahweh from jethro his Mm father-in-law Because Jethro is a priest. Right. And he, he makes a declaration. He knows that God is the one true God. Um, now, how much he realized that before his interaction with Moses and seeing the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and how much of it, you know. Right. Because we did, we did speculate that, that there were different priests back then who would just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the right price, would contact whichever God you wanted. 
and is kind of similar like a chaplain who would yeah. works with many denominations or different religious backgrounds and and that definitely occurred um now what what i find to be interesting is if you you know we talk about retellings if you look at melchizedek and you look at jethro they're they're the same story okay and so you've got a great retelling there and melchizedek was the priest of the of the one true god the creator of heaven and earth he's mm-hmm. the one who who first spoke that that term uh creator of heaven and earth and so when you put those together, it kind of makes me lean towards the idea that Jethro was doing the right thing. Mm. And he would have been, I believe, was a descendant of Esau. Right. And so Esau, what did he do? And we, talk about, we talked about in Genesis that he wasn't this big, horrible person. Right. He was just not the one chosen to fulfill the covenant. And while Jacob was away, he took care of the land. Right. And so the idea that... Jethro could know the true God, the God of Abraham. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not a stretch. Yeah, I mean, there, there's it's reasonable to think that that Melchizedek uh, had successors. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, we're still piecing some of that together, and I, I hope that as we find more documents, more archaeological digs, and things like that, we get to learn some more. Uh, but we do know that this affinity for the Kenites. Um, it, it continued. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, at one point when Saul's going to attack, um, he he warns, you know, y'all guys need to get out before we come take over everybody else. You're you're going to need to get out, and that's in First Samuel 15. Uh, Jl, uh, we're we're going to talk a lot about her. Uh, she's a Kenite. So we also too, and I, I almost missed this note that we have inscriptions in Canaan from this time period. Mm-hmm that have the name of God, uh, the, the Tetragrammaton, the yod Hey vav Hey name given at Moses in this area. Right. And this was prior to the Exodus. And that's, that's what we would pronounce Yahweh. Yes. Because. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make sure everyone is clear on that. <laughs> yeah. The name, yeah. Specifically, yeah. The name given at, at the burning bush. And we, so to have that present before the Exodus, now granted that's if you take the later date. That's important and that's significant, and we aren't going to talk about the dating of we Exodus. Are, we are not going to talk about Mm-mm. the dating. Nope. Nope. So, but it was there early. That's all we need to know. I think that's the significant part. Um, and it, it's important also to note that these are coppersmiths. Um, they, their name, can I, is based on the word for smith. Okay. And um, so... We, we do have, and that's important because when we get to the story of JL, that's going to play in to, to their, uh, to all of her interactions. Okay. So anyway, so this is who Caleb is. The Caleb's, that's the main point. Caleb is not a Judite. Right. He, he, he is beyond that. And he has been accepted and he's so accepted. And this is what I love about his story. He's so accepted that even today we don't realize that he's not Jewish. Right. Even today when we tell the story. Yeah, I, I had never heard of that. Well, I hadn't realized it until we had gone through this, this study. You know? it, well, yeah, and, and that's, that's the thing. When we, when we see this, the, this is a way to push back against, oh, well, God just kills people who are of a different race or ethnicity than his people. No, that's not what's going on. Right. God, is, God is taking out people who have rejected him and continue to try to stay in the land that he has claimed for his own. Mm-hmm. And even today, if you come home and like I said, come home, there's a burglar in your house. You don't t- say, hey, you can eat out of the fridge. Here's the remote. Shall I go run you a bath? I mean, right. you know, right. you, you kick him out. So um, we also have this is where the the text breaks in with another nice little story it's actually one of my favorites it's it's very brief um and this is uh is this is uh caleb's daughter right this is caleb's daughter and we, we've mentioned before the uh feminist theology uh in the book of judges this is our first little glimpse of that where we kind of see and again not mm-hmm. political so much as just studying women of the Bible, right, and and kind of how the Bible treats women, and again, we're going to see that women aren't just property in the Bible, right? They they actually have some stuff going on. Now, granted, she is sold off basically <laughs> right. to another man, but she becomes a prize. So, so let's <laughs> let's let's look at this. Okay, so um, 
this is verse uh, 12. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir uh, and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he was given Aksah, his wife, for a daughter. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask for her father, to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from the donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the, hand, in the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Okay, what I love about this is, yes, she, she's given as a prize. But number one, we got to go back and think about that culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was just given to the man who was a conquering war hero. Yeah. You want your daughters married to a man who can defend them. Yeah. He was making sure she had the best husband, the best provider, the best protector that he could possibly get for her. So this is the act of a loving father. Right. And in this time, this was not in debate. And so the second thing, you know, she urges her husband, says, hey, go talk to dad and tell him this is what we want. But dad doesn't even give her a chance. He, he just, what do you want? He, he approaches her. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, this meeting of equals that he's not talking down to her. He's not, you know, playing any kinds of games. She, and she says, hey, I, I want a blessing. Uh, the JPS translates it, I want a gift. And this is not a bride price. Right. Well, and the other thing to, to take into account here is if you, you know, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and this kind of goes, possibly is not in the text because it kind of goes without saying, is the idea that the woman has the right to refuse this. Mm-hmm. So it's quite possible that this was discussed between uh, Aksha and Caleb that, or Aksha and Caleb, that they uh, sat down and he said, okay, here's, here's the deal. We need mm-hmm. to find you a good husband. How mm-hmm. are we going to do it? What do, what do you think? And, you know, who knows? They might have just been playing around. And, <laughs> what do you think? If we can get, we can get someone to, to do this, would you marry, would you well, marry this guy? <laughs> and Othniel may have been a front, front runner anyway. Sure. I mean, this is Caleb's nephew. And so uh, she's marrying her cousin here, which you know, wasn't uncommon. Right. And so he, when Caleb put out the, the call to arms, he probably knew what was going to happen. I mean, this was a family member, so you kind of, you know what it's like. You, we can pretty much guess who's going to be doing what in the family. Mm-hmm. And the, so when she, she asked for this gift, she's saying, hey, yeah, I know you gave my husband a pretty sweet deal. But because Othniel got to ca- keep the city with the, the spoils. But I want to be remembered, too. And so this yeah. would have been hers. This would not have been her husband's. This would have been distinct. And not only does he give her what she asked for, he gives her above and beyond mm-hmm. what she asked for. Yeah, she asked for some springs and he says, well, I'll give you the springs, but I'm going to give you these springs. And yeah, I'll give you both the springs, and, the and upper and the lower. Again, loving father, because now she's established and their family is set up to be wealthy and successful. And the other thing to point out, she was not an abused woman. Right. Abused women do not make demands like this. Right. So she felt confident. She's riding a donkey, by the way. That that's a sign of being honored. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's being well cared for. And I do I, I like the story because it, it's simple. It's just a simple little peek behind the scenes. And we're gonna talk and, it, and it's actually, I mean, it's something that's kind of odd to even be put into the text. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless there's some other, I mean, and, and, I mean, I guess you could say this was probably put in there again, if you wanted to think of it, just preserving history or something mm-hmm. like that, where to say, well, he took the city, but this is how his family got the springs too. Yeah. I mean, you could throw that in there for property rights or things like that, um, because we do have a lot of information right. about property rights in here. But that might be where it came from. But at the same time, it's still a very minor story. And you could have just assumed that, okay, he got the city and the surrounding lands. Oh, yeah. The, you know, but so, that, so that's where. So, yeah, but they're giving credit back to her. And this, this whole little um, event and scene here that's set up is going to come into play whenever we get to talking about the, um, about the judges themselves. Mm-hmm. Because now we know who Othniel is. We, we, we have some good background on him. 
and he's going to be our first judge. Yeah, so he is the Othniel that's in the yes, next he's the first chapter. judge. He's a Kenite. He's not even one of the, the Jews. Uh, he, he is, um, but he's set up to take, to take the stage. Mm-hmm. And it's here in the scene that where it begins. So that's where I'm talking about, you know, we had just had all that stuff from Joshua and Numbers and Genesis that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this little scene that's pushing us forward. So that's the tension that the writer's creating. Right. So um, as we move out of this, then Judah faces its, its first defeat. Uh, this in verses 18 through 20. And, and it tells us that it's facing its first defeat because they've got iron chariots. The Hittites have iron chariots. Th- this is an excuse. Because none of the, none of the victories that, that Israel has accomplished so far have anything to do with their military might. Right. It has, I mean, Jericho, nothing they did caused those walls to fall down. And so this idea that, oh, well, they, they couldn't win because there's chariots involved. It, it's ridiculous when you look at it according to everything that has happened in Joshua. Mm-hmm. I mean, so God, you know, he, he caused the sun to stand still. Uh, and we do know from archaeological evidence that they were using iron at this point. Now, iron was not widely used uh, until 12 to 586 BCE, 1200 okay. to 586 BC. Um, but the Hittites, they were before everybody else. They're 13th century. They are, they are yeah. at the leading edge of it. And the, the Egyptians controlled a lot of Canaan at p- this point, and they would have been using the latest military um, advantages that the Hittites had to offer when they weren't fighting with the Hittites. Sure. So, but, you know, they're supposed to be winning. The, the point is Judah's supposed to be winning because God's with them. Right. So uh, verse 21, we're, we're moving away from, from Judah. We're going into the tribe of Benjamin. and um, the tribe of Benjamin, they're living in Jerusalem. And if you notice the verse there, it says that they live with the Jebusites. Right. They're, they just go in and they're like, oh, these people aren't so bad. Yeah. There, there's no hint of a battle. There's no uh, actual, hey, we're, we're even going to try anything. But they aren't supposed to be with the Jebusites. They're supposed to be with God. Right. And this is, it, it's like, what's going on? And this is the setup for the, for the last half of the book of Judges. Because the last half of the book of Judges centers on the tribe of Benjamin and how they are consistently failing to do the right thing. Um, it does say that until this day they lived with the Jebusites in mm-hmm. verse 21. Um, Radic, he's one of the, the uh, rabbis, he said that that meant that until Samuel's day when he wrote the book of Judges. So we, again, Samuel probably didn't write it, but definitely up into the monarchy that the Jebusites were still there. So. And then, and then the rest of that chapter is we basically just see a whole bunch of cohabitation and, and not doing the right thing. A, a ton of it, a, a ton of that. And we wanted, I do want to look at what's going on with Benjamin um, because we got some interesting parallels that the writer has set up um, with Sorry, this is not Benjamin, it would be Joseph. The house of Joseph and going into Bethel. And so we've got some interesting parallels, both with um, what Judah accomplished in the first part of the chapter, also with Jericho and Rahab, and the writer once again creating that tension. Mm-hmm. So how are we on time? You're, you're good. We're good. Okay. We'll, go ahead and we'll wrap this up and then, then we'll be about good. <laughs> we'll wrap it. Okay. So... Um, Verses 22 through 26. I think we should just read that. Do you want to read that? No, go ahead. Okay. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And it was that, it, that is its name to this day. So, all right. Real short, simple, sweet account. And on, on the surface, it kind of looks harmless. Right. 
but we actually have some things going on here that are just wrong. Now, first of all, anybody who's listened to uh, our Genesis series or read your Bible, you know, Bethel is the place where uh, Jacob had seen the angels ascending and descending. So Mm -hmm. this is an important um, site. Yeah, very important sacred site. And it's a deliberate setup. It, the writer is wanting us to, to compare this with what happened with Judah. Uh, remember, Judah captured Adonai Bezek. Mm-hmm. They captured the, the high-ruling mayor of Bezek. The house of Joseph ca- captures a nobody. He's just a random guy. He doesn't even <laughs> get a name. Right. Who cares? Um, Judah, they fight, pursue, they, they, they seize, they mutilate. Um, Joseph is... Hey, come help us. Please help us. Can't you right. make this? So, and then they offer without the guy even negotiating or asking for, they offer to save his family. Um, Adonai Bezek, he dies. The trader built a whole new house, a whole new town right. that, that continues to exist. And so the house of Joseph, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh, that's, it's an idiom to cover both of them. Right. They're, they're falling down. They're falling down on the job. They're, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Right. And we're all supposed, supposed to read this um, with a, uh, another story in mind. And that's Jericho. Sure. Which, you know, that's the opening account of Joshua. And so here in this opening account of Judges, we have Jericho. You know, in, in both accounts, they send men to spy. In both accounts, the spies meet somebody. Mm-hmm. And Jericho is Rahab. And we get this Mr. No Name here. She hides the spies. This guy says, yeah, it's that away. I mean, that's all he does is point out the city gates. He doesn't offer any kind of strategic advice. Rahab confesses her, her faith in God, and she deals kindly with the spies. This guy does nothing. He, he right. says nothing. Um, she asks for her family to be spared. They offer it to him. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's also interesting, too, because you have... You have uh the 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 tribe of joseph here or manasseh and ephraim mm-hmm. you have you have them making a covenant with the people where in the other one you see rahab making a covenant precisely with God. that and that's what it all boils down to because they rahab she's the one who's making the overtures she's the one who who's saying i want to be a part of this mm-hmm. the spies are not making random promises to her and, and then she goes on and she marries um, Salmon, who becomes the mother of Boaz. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Boaz and Ruth, if you've got a Christian Bible, that's going to be the story after Judges. So that's important. Um, this guy doesn't become a part of the community. He, he continues on as a Hittite. Mm-hmm. He, he does not renounce his former associations. He, he actually builds a monument to them. So, you know. Joseph is just, when you have these stories in mind, both the, the, what Judah is doing with their capture, mm-hmm. and then with Jericho, you realize Joseph is missing the point, and they are not doing things in a correct manner. Right. And that's, that's the thing. When you, when you read the story and you, you begin to plug it in to all the different scenarios that interplay with it, the, the scriptures that talk to each other. Then, then you begin to realize this isn't just an innocent account. This is Joseph not being faithful. Right. And they're trying to take the easy way out. So, um, yeah, 27 through 35, like you said, that's just a list of, man, failure after failure after failure. And mm-hmm. we just trying to think, is there really anything in there that we need to spend a lot of time on? Uh, maybe verse 34. Uh, if you'll notice verse 34, after all of these people who have just, they've settled down with the inhabitants of, of Canaan, they, they've enslaved them. They have, uh, they're living aside of them, beside them. Uh, everybody seems to be getting along in one big happy family, except for Dan. And this is, the, it says, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So the Amorites, if we remember the Amorites, they're in Genesis 15, and when God tells Abraham, hey, your, your people, your, your family, they're going to be oppressed for 300 years mm-hmm. because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. Right. And so uh, the Amorites are not content to let, the, uh, to let the Israelites live alongside them. And 
What's the most disturbing about that is verse 35. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount uh, Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, the Amorites, and they became subject to forced labor. So the house of Joseph, not only did they have this great big debacle with their spies, they aren't even helping their brother. Right. And so we're seeing the, this disintegration of the moral, ethical, and the compassion, you know, all, all, mm-hmm. all these aspects of relationship that were being built among the tribes as they moved under Joshua to take over this land. Now as um, you know, they, they're getting settled and we're moving away from that generation who traveled in the desert and been even born in the desert. Now we're seeing them really adopt the, the mindset of the Canaanites. Right. And it just, man, it, it becomes a problem. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, too, that they were told to drive these people out. Right. And they didn't do it. And there's this idea, well, maybe it was because they didn't have enough power. Maybe they weren't, um, you know, they didn't have large enough armies. They didn't have enough military advancement. But, uh, but that's never, that's never how the, the, battles work never and the other thing is they enslave the people what takes more effort you know Mm -hmm. what what's Mm -hmm. what's harder to to drive people out to conquer them completely or to enslave them and i would think enslaving a nation or enslaving a tribe or even just this family Mm -hmm. would take a lot more power and a lot more might than just to get rid of someone right so I think to say that they're enslaving these people actually shows us that this is not just an act of, oh, I couldn't, Mm -hmm. but an act of rebellion. Sure. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, cool. Was there anything more on that or is that kind of wrap up that point? I think that's going to wrap up chapter one for us. Okay, cool. Well, let's go ahead and stop there. That's a good good place to stop right at the end of the chapter. chapter, Yeah. So, um. Everyone out there, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, we had a good time. I had a good time. Do you have a good time? Sure. Okay, excellent. I'm choked huh. up about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you out there uh, enjoyed it, be sure to like, comment, and share. Um, if you want to help other people find us, be sure to give us a rating or a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. That gets a little higher in the ranks. Um, thanks for joining us. And if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on ravencreeksc.com where you can find our show. You can also find, um, got a new show launching soon and I'll talk more about that later, uh, probably next week. Um, or it's actually kind of mostly launched. We're just waiting for <laughs> iTunes approval anyway. But if you have been following us on Facebook, you know mostly about that. But anyway, I'm rambling now. So, uh, speaking of Facebook, uh, Raven Creek SC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, join us in the conversation. Or if you have any questions, comments, or complaints, uh, feel free to send them our way. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.